This is Backstory. I'm Peter Onoff. The decisive vote of the 36th state against prohibition is happy news for the grain raisers of the United States and for many others. In December of 1933, the nation abandoned the great social experiment called prohibition. In hindsight, it seems like a colossal failure. But back then, that wasn't so clear. Al Capone's out there, crime is out there, murder is out there. At the same time, you've got a lot of Americans, a majority probably, taking great pride in what the federal government is trying to do and seeing it as noble. But how did the government come to outlaw booze in the first place? This was a nation founded by people who drank hard cider for breakfast. Even the Continental Army was drunk much of the time. And in fact, Washington was incredibly concerned that soldiers were not getting enough to drink. The history of alcohol in America, today on Backstory. Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory with the American History Guys. Welcome to the show. I'm Brian Bellow, and I'm here with Ed Ayers. Hi, Brian. And Peter Onuf's with us. Hey there, Brian. Smashed. Blitzed. Blasted. Soused. Sloshed. Plastered. Buzzed. Schnockered is one. Fustigated. Spithlicated. Liquored up. Crocked. Not quite myself. (laughs) That's all? If we're going to do this, we might as well get three sheets to the wind, baby. Three sheets to the wind. Three sheets to the wind. Absolutely soused. Yes, today on our show, we're talking about one of America's very favorite pastimes, drinking. And if you're looking for some fresh ways to describe a spot of New Year's tipsiness, well, we're here to help. Or rather, Ben Franklin is. When it comes to dreaming up synonyms for drunk, he's still the guy to beat. Addled, afflicted, bewitched, been at Barbados, cramped. In 1776, Franklin published the Drinker's Dictionary, a kind of single-subject thesaurus with more than 200 variations on the theme. He's quarrelsome, like a rat in trouble. He's fishy, fuddled, sore-footed, as good-conditioned as a puppy, got a brass eye, got on his little hat, in the suds. Now, we don't have to point out that drunkenness also has a very dark side, and that also has deep roots in American history. So today in our show, we're going to figure out why America's relationship with alcohol seems so schizophrenic. On one hand, we seem all about excess. On another, all about abstinence. We're going to try to figure out how those two things relate. Hey, Peter. You know, all those synonyms that Franklin rattled off, I mean, somebody who could come up with that many names for being drunk, he had to be awash in alcohol. How much did people drink back then? Well, a whole lot, Brian. It was common for everybody, men, women, children, too, to start their day with a glass of hard cider. By 1770, the average white woman here in Virginia was drinking a pint of the stuff each day. The average white male was drinking the equivalent of seven shots of hard alcohol each day. I sat down with historian Sarah Hand Meacham, who's written about alcohol in the colonial Chesapeake, and I asked her, why did people back then drink so much? There's really nothing else to drink. The water is filled with insects, um, blood from... um, Nice. uh, Killing animals. (laughs) I can't think of a better way to say it. Um, Okay, okay. How about milk? 
Well, the cows weren't bred the way they are today. They didn't have as much milk, um, and cows sometimes grazed on jimson weed, which gave people milk sickness, a serious illness. Energy drinks, uh, something like this. There's less really, seriously, fruit drinks. Come on. No, there are naturally occurring airborne yeasts that make any open fruit juice turn alcoholic. So there's really very little to drink other than alcohol. So uh, where did they get their alcohol? They are mostly making it. Um, And one of the surprising things, something people don't always realize, is that it was mostly women's work to make it. Back in England, where most of the colonists were coming from in this region, at least the free colonists, they were drinking ale and beer. And Mm -hmm. back then, ale didn't have hops and beer did have hops, but all made from wheat. Wheat was just too much trouble to grow in the Virginia region, where you could make so much profit from tobacco. And so what they do is they revert back to older ways of having women make cider. So, sir, you're describing a culture in which everybody all the time is drinking. They're drinking in the fields. They're drinking first thing in the morning. It's not just cider. It's any old thing that they can are. be fermented, mm-hmm. right? So there must have been a lot of drunkenness. It stands to reason. People are imbibing so much. So is there a drinking problem or why don't people see a problem? There do not seem to have been any concerns about drunkenness in the 18th century, in 18th century America. Um, Generally speaking, people drank differently in the 18th century. They're drinking it throughout the day. So it's a little bit different and they're Mm -hmm. very accustomed to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And there really don't seem to have been concerns about drunkenness. It's true that they do describe people occasionally as drunk for court cases where somebody will be at court and the justices will throw someone out um, for being so drunk that he called the justices, you rotten, vile dogs. (laughs) Just telling the truth. (laughs) But they don't they don't do anything to them. They just say, go sober up and come back. Uh, Now, we Period specialists tend to think that the American Revolution changes everything. It's a new world. It did change everything. Yeah. Would it be a new and more sober world? Or what changed in the Uh, world of alcohol? It's going to be a more sober world for some people. Uh Uh-huh. And a less sober world for others. Whoa. So part of what happens during the American Revolution is that in 1781, George Washington decided to change the daily rations. Um, Up until then, the... Uh, Continental Army had gotten their supplies the same way that English armies traditionally had. They went from place to place, and the local housewives came out, they set up stalls, and they sold food and liquor to the army. Mm-hmm. But this creates all sorts of problems. People right. fall in love, people mm. get active in other ways, yeah, yeah. and a lot of children were produced. Um, and so <laughs> what happens okay. is that... George Washington gets, I think, understandably very frustrated where he has all of these sort of women trailing along with the men. He has all these children trailing along. They're eating food that could be for the soldiers. Mm -hmm. And Washington is trying to figure out ways to make a more professional army. But it's not the drunkenness of the soldiers so much as their sex lives that seems to be bothering That's true. Washington Washington is not particularly concerned about their drunkenness. And in fact, Washington was incredibly concerned that um, soldiers were not getting enough to drink. Mm. The uh, soldiers were supposed to get the equivalent of at least three shots of rum per day or a pint of cider per day. One pint of cider is just half of what a Chesapeake woman That's would have That's right. It's not nearly enough for a wow. fighting man. Okay. And in fact, men fighting the American Revolution are supposed to get extra rations of alcohol if they actually fight that day, right before battle, oh, so that they're really geared up. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> 
Um, but if it rains, they get double rations. Um, the problem is that Washington can't provide all this alcohol that on paper the men are supposed to get. Uh-huh. Um, and so he makes a switch in 1781. He says, from now on, we're going to have rum provided on year-long contracts. So instead of having all these women set up stalls and have the men go and get their own alcohol, yeah. we're going to have army-supplied rum to the fighting men. So this is a key moment in, this is the, a key moment. in the transition toward a more industrialized market-based al- It is, and I think culture. it also helps teach American men, these new creatures, right, American men, yeah. that American men drink distilled liquor made by other American men. It really leads to the masculinization of alcohol. But at the same time, there's another shift, which is the emphasis on tea drinking. Mm. And once we get um, the rise of tea and the availability of tea in America, and particularly sort of trickling down 1760, 1770, part of what happens is that finally... Americans have something else to drink, right? The tea is safe. Tea has water that is boiled. It is flavored with the tea leaves. And so now people who have time to make a cup of tea have something to drink that isn't alcohol. And that's when we begin to get the inkling that there might be something wrong with drinking alcohol all the time, that there might be something wrong with being drunk. That's uh, Sarah Ann Meacham. She's a professor of history at Virginia Commonwealth University, and her book is called Every Home a Distillery, Alcohol, Gender, and Technology in the Colonial Chesapeake. Guys, a story that Sarah tells us takes us through the end of the American Revolution. I'm looking at a bunch of numbers here. And they tell us, at that point, in 1790, the average American drank 5.8 gallons of pure alcohol per year. So, Ed, bring us into the 19th century. What, what happens next? Well, you know, as robust a tradition we have of drinking in colonial America, the 19th century really takes it to a new level. It turns out that whiskey is a great thing to produce from all that corn they can grow on the new farms of the West. And that whiskey not only saturates the West, but it flows back to the East where people are buying it in the cities and towns of the East. And as a result, we see in the very beginning of the 19th century a huge spike in drinking. And so by the 1830s, the average American is drinking seven gallons of pure alcohol every year. Oh, come on. A big increase. Yeah, that's even more than back in the late 18th century. You know, Ed, I'm looking at this chart of alcohol consumption It seems to bear out exactly what you're saying, at least up to the 1830s. But then there's this incredible drop-off. In 1840, alcohol consumption is less than half of what it was 10 years earlier. So, you know, yet again, I got to know what's going on. It's the age of extremes there in the 19th century, Brian. No sooner does the market bring all this cheap whiskey into America's homes and communities than people begin to worry about what it's doing. It wreaks havoc in many ways, as you can imagine. Uh, it's not unlike really the, the sudden appearance of crack or you know, other drugs that, yeah. that really distort social life. When Peter was talking about people drinking cider, people talking about drinking all day long, they were really living and working together. But in the 19th century, you begin to see the gender separated, you begin to see work and leisure separated, and you begin to see a lot of binge drinking. And so women are looking at this and just distraught about what this 
sea of alcohol is doing to the families and communities in which they live. Fortunately, they have a new tool at their command. They're in the evangelical churches that believe that you can reform the world around you as well as prepare yourself for for the, the world to come. People can see that the conversion experience can lead people from being drunkards to being teetotalers overnight. And they think if this works so powerfully inside the church, what might it do in society as a whole? They begin to create new reform organizations that will take that same evangelical zeal of reaching out to make new recruits from abstinence from alcohol. This is something new in the 19th century, not merely moderating your intake, but stopping altogether. Once this takes root, people see as powerful as the churches are and as powerful as reform organizations are, if we could enlist the state, we could have even greater progress in bringing alcohol to heal. So in Maine in 1851, they ban alcohol altogether. And by 1855, 12 more states have enacted similar laws. It's impossible to enforce prohibition in the 19th century. They don't really have the machinery of the state to do that. And the Civil War, as you can imagine, just disrupts all of this. The amount of suffering and the amount of alcohol and the number of men who are all together uh, really just kind of turns that whole impulse on its head. And a lot of laws ultimately get repealed. But the idea that the state can help people avoid the evils of booze, that sticks around. What, you might ask, makes booze a subject worthy for the history guys? Well, how's this for an answer? If you had to pick the reform that Americans have taken most seriously over a longer period of time, it would have to be stopping drinking. More than civil rights, more than abolition. If you just look at the sheer number of people who took this reform seriously, this is our number one across American history. This is Jim Marone. Several years back, he published a book called Hellfire Nation, It traces the way ideas about sin have shaped reform movements. We asked Jim to pick up the story of temperance where Ed left off, with Victorian women who got together to fight the ravages of alcohol on home life. Jim said that in the middle of the 19th century, there was another factor in play. I think the other part of it is remember what else is happening in the society. This is becoming an era of very high immigration. Immigrants drank. And this was a way of good, another way. There are many ways in American history. We know, we can see it today. But this was a fantastic way for people to raise themselves up above these very dubious immigrants from questionable places with poor values. This was a way of saying American values are truly special. We really are a city on a hill. And we can organize ourselves around these things that, that really make us good and distinguish those those people in the cities. So, Jim, you've talked about ethnicity as a divide that can emerge in 
debates about drinking. How about race? How does uh, how does race figure in in the temperance movement? Race is the other really big one, and I think it's the most overlooked piece of this. And it takes place in the South. The great metaphor, the great trope, turn of the century, is of course the rape narrative. The mm-hmm. black men rape white women. And that's why Jim Crow has to go into effect, has to go into place to control this group that's not ready for the kinds of freedoms that America affords males. Now, there was a basic problem with this, that the black people, most people knew, didn't play the part of this rapacious, fearsome black male that's such an important part of the stereotype. And the missing piece was liquor. If you read the literature coming out of the 19th century, late 19th century, South, over and over again, you see there is descriptions that black man drinks alcohol, and that makes him a fiend. In fact, there was a lot of talk about outlawing pictures of women on alcohol bottles because it was said that the black man would see the white woman on the her picture and would go rape the nearest white woman. It was said that why was there so much lynching in the South in the 1890s? Alcohol. So there was this great argument that black men under the influence of alcohol, see, they, they weren't like the black guys you knew right. who were really quite differential. And they weren't worried about the lynch mob being liquored up. <laughs> no, right. Well, they, <laughs> they were worried were. They, about they, the black they, man they, being liquored up. <laughs> They very much, very, very much, but what finally brings this to a head, the Atlanta race riot, this terrible race riot in September 1906. The Atlanta newspapers get guys all jimmied up. Some woman had been assaulted for the third time by a black guy, an unknown black assailant, probably liquored up. This is in the newspaper articles if you go back and look at them. And the claim on the sub-headline is, what's wrong with our men? Can they no longer protect southern white women? There is a horrible race riot. Young men ran through the streets, took black men off trains, out of businesses, beat them up, killed uh, an unknown number. The elites, the progressive elites now step in and say, you know, it's not just the black guys who drink. It's the white guys. It's the lower class whites who drink too. The Atlanta race riot pushed everybody over the top and said, we just have to forbid all alcohol in Georgia. Georgia goes first. And one after another, the southern states go dry. And they go dry in arguments about race. Right as Jim Crow goes into place between 1895 and 1905. Let me stop you there because almost everything that the three of us have talked about up till now is a very local story, maybe state level at the most. Yet in the early 20th century, we get a national amendment. We get national prohibition. This is Explain to our listeners yeah. how we can get from such a historically localistic story to such a powerful use of the national government. Isn't that a fantastic story? And you can see it happening if you watch what states go dry. First, the whole South goes dry, race. Then the West goes dry. And it's part um, part the women's movement and part a, a, a way of distinguishing the West from those horrible immigrants in the East. But there's a number of problems. 
One piece is it was hard to stay dry if there were other states that were wet. So that if yeah. you, Georgia, went dry, for example, it was very hard to stop the guy up on the hill from ordering a keg of whiskey from Ohio <laughs> because interstate commerce is part of the Constitution. So it was impossible to be truly dry under our Constitution. But I think all of that would not have been enough to get us, I don't think, to prohibition if one last thing hadn't fallen into place. World War One. Yeah. World War One was the prohibitionist dream. Because all of a sudden, there was this great noble cause that the United States had plunged into. Our armies were different, remember. They were going to be the, the great Christian armies. There's a fascinating – if you ever want to do some fascinating reading, look at the graduation addresses in 1917 and 1918 as the college presidents and the speakers look at the boys the, who are going to be the officers in the American army. At Brown, the president turned – to the audience and says the same thing they said at Harvard, Princeton, Yale, can we do less? Can we do less than these boys that we're sending over to be a Christian army? And as one of the presidents put it, patriotism must mean prohibition. Now the forces of the Wets, who lived in the Northeast, had a huge burden. They had to not only defend drinking and immigrants, yeah. they had to say why they were resisting the great Christian army. And it was in war fervor and in the sort of fervor of being the great Christian nation that prohibition goes over the top and actually becomes the law. Well, Jim, the caricature of prohibition, particularly during its national phase, that it was an absurd attempt of uh, rural people to impose their values – on the country, and it was a colossal failure leading to gangsters and and all the, the crime of the Depression years and so forth. Uh, giving us a, a balanced view, getting beyond the black and white, as you say, how would you evaluate in a more sympathetic way the experiment with prohibition? The media lived in the big eastern cities, and they were so sarcastic. You've <laughs> described it well. I think it was um, – one of the New York papers who would do the little trick of sending reporters to big cities and with a stopwatch and asking them to time themselves how long it took them to get out in a strange city off the train <laughs> and in a saloon drinking. Right. And if basically the me message was if you couldn't do it in 10 minutes, you were an idiot. And usually it was a lot less than 10 minutes. So from that we get – uh, an image that's not false. You know, you, the cities were awash with both alcohol and because it was a banned substance, crime. Yeah, yeah. In rural America, however, this is a great reform. It's our reform is the way rural people saw it. And they believed in this reform enormously. This was for the, for the first time they really felt the touch of federal government mm. as a kind of spiritual cause – People like to say that the New Deal is the father of big government. That's yeah, nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. The father of big government is prohibition. And it won over people in the heartland from coast to coast who really believed this was the government trying to do something really quite noble. We now believe that we got back to the rate of drinking that, uh, that existed in America in 1915, really before World War I mm -hmm. begins. We got back to that rate of drinking in 1971. So in that sense, people would say, yeah, not only was prohibition successful in stopping people from drinking, people actually found it pretty good. 
It's a tale of two Americas, as yeah, so many stories yeah. are, isn't it? But, Jim, taking the long view, we certainly drink a lot less than Americans did during the early republic. And you could say that uh, prohibition initiated a period of concern about public health in the broadest sense of the term. And uh, the changes have been enduring ones. And that the yes. national government remained quite active in those issues from that point on. Well, all those things you just said are absolutely right on. And to add to Brian's last point, one thing that was very interesting during all this was that we had to decide what the Constitution said about the federal government going in there and getting this involved in people's lives. Fourth Amendment law, Fourth Amendment uh, says that – People have to be must be secure uh, in their personal their personal property and their and their themselves uh, that the government cannot search and seize to right, do search right. and seizure. Um, Fourth Amendment law gets rewritten around prohibition. Mm-hmm. Uh, may you wiretap someone's house? Is that the same thing as breaking in and rifling through their papers? Right. You see a known bootlegger driving back to Detroit from Windsor, Ontario. You're a cop. You turn around, you give chase, you stop him, you rip his seats out, what's there? Of course, cases of booze. Well, was that a legal stop or not? Cars were relatively new. So all the rules and regulations that we now use in our drug wars went into effect during Prohibition. So the echo of Prohibition lives on. Yeah, for better or worse, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Brian and Peter, lots of fun, and thank you for having me on. That's Jim Marone. He's a political science professor at Brown University. You can listen to a longer version of our conversation on our website, backstoryradio.org. White Clay, Nebraska has a population of 12 people and sold nearly 4 million cans of beer last year. The tiny town is two hours from the nearest city, but a two-minute walk from the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Until 2013, the Oglala Sioux Tribe had banned alcohol at Pine Ridge, where the vast majority of families struggle with alcoholism. But they couldn't keep residents from walking across the border to one of White Clay's four liquor stores, and many did. In 2012, the tribe sued White Clay's liquor stores and several major brewing companies. The tribe accused the companies of encouraging criminal drinking by selling alcohol to people who lived on a dry reservation. A federal judge dismissed the tribe's case. Now, the story of an Indian community resisting the pressures of the alcohol trade has deep roots. Those roots go all the way back to the end of the 16th century— That's when British colonists decided that the best way to make Indians into good colonial subjects was to, as strange as it seems, sell them alcohol. Now, on face value, this is a pretty strange idea. So I sat down with Peter Mankell, a historian at the University of Southern California, to try to figure out what those early British colonists could possibly have been thinking. So there are a number of things that they want from native peoples. I mean, they want them to convert to Christianity, and they they want to sell them things and buy things. But I mean, but what they really emphasize time and again 
that one of the things that's wrong with Native peoples is they have this sort of collectivist ethos, you know, that they're not sort of, you know, individual market-oriented people. And so how do you make them market-oriented? And, and the answer they came to is, well, we have to sell them goods that they will want. And in some sense, the two ideal commodities to introduce into Indian country were gunpowder and alcohol. And they were ideal because as long as Natives did not make them themselves – they would continually come back to colonists to buy them. And in that act of coming back to colonists, in addition to generating profits for the sellers, they are also then beginning to participate in the kinds of market behavior that was one of the core pillars of civilization. There's this moment uh, when Sir William Johnson, who's the superintendent of Indian affairs for the northern colonies, a guy who lives out in Mohawk country, who really knows you know, as much about Native peoples as any colonist, you know, when sort of writing about should we get rid of the alcohol trade, that's writing to British officials, should we get rid of it? You know, he's sort of torn because he sees the devastations of it. And at the same time, he says, well, basically, if we stop selling Indians alcohol, then what are we going to sell them? Because we they really right, don't right. need that many shirts or that many <laughs> pairs of leggings or that many coats. And so if we don't have alcohol to sell them, it will reduce the incentive for them to participate in the larger market economy. And then in his words, they'll become indolent. That is, they'll become lazy, and that will be an impediment to their larger mission of civilization. So what could go possibly wrong with selling people alcohol and gunpowder, right? <laughs> well, then you, got, you got right to the punchline there. Exactly. What could possibly go wrong? You could probably guess what went wrong. Alcohol fueled violence in Indian country, violence that mostly hurt other Indians. It impoverished tribes who traded their goods for rum rather than for tools or clothing, and it bolstered white stereotypes of Indians as drunken, undisciplined savages. Now, not all white colonists were in favor of the alcohol trade. Some local officials worried that it would make Indians more violent in general. A lot of missionaries urged colonial authorities to ban it altogether. Indian converts to Christianity supported these efforts, but Peter Mancall told me that the most effective push for Indian temperance came from indigenous revival movements. Really starting in the 18th century, a number of Native religious leaders came to really question the long-term relations that Native peoples were having with European colonists. And by the time we get to the mid-18th century, some of those leaders, like the Delaware prophet Neolin, had really begun to articulate a sense that that life had really deteriorated for Native people since colonization, and they had to move towards a new relationship uh, with each other and a new relationship with the world of the spirits. Right. And so we begin to see these nativist movements in which religious leaders are instructing members of their communities to sort of put to the side everything that colonists had brought them. Get rid of domesticated livestock. Let's go back to, if we're going to eat meat, let's get it from the hunt. Get rid of European-style clothing. Get rid of anything about Europeans. Get rid of, in fact, Christianity. Wow. And then also get rid of alcohol. Hmm. So alcohol is embedded in this larger... Uh, exactly. Alcohol is embedded in this larger effort yeah. um, to sort of reclaim their, their universe. So what did uh, whites think of this? Did they support these movements? Did they think it was still going to take state action or some religious action by white Americans, or did they applaud this? Well, you know, that's a great question because you would think that Euro-Americans 
who see the consequences of destructive drinking would embrace these sort of nativist movements, would say anything that can diminish the sales of alcohol among Indians is a good thing. But European Americans for a long time were very suspicious of native revivalist moments, sure. movements and moments. We see that most dramatically you know, on the Northern Plains at the end of the 19th century with the United States government response to the ghost dance. I yeah. mean, the ghost dance is a religious revival movement in which people prayed for a world in which the influences of Europeans would disappear and the ancestors would come back and harmony would reign. And then through a series of destructive pathological misunderstandings, the United States government decides that it is going to crack down on this religious observance and attack them. And so I think in some sense from the colonial period into the 19th century and then you could have a debate I suppose about the 20th century, Euro-Americans have never been especially comfortable with Native American religious movements um, even though sometimes those movements, the Native movements, have the same ends, temperance, as the Euro-American movements. That was Peter Mankell professor of history at the University of Southern California. His book is called Deadly Medicine, Indians and Alcohol in Early America. Many of you have left comments on this topic on Facebook and our website, we've invited a few of those people to join us on air. We got a call from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and we've got Patty on the line. Patty, yes, hey, sir. welcome to the show. Thank you. We're talking about alcohol. Well, it's a favorite topic of the Irish. It sounds Irish, doesn't it? Patty. With two Ds? Yeah. I am fourth generation Irish in America, uh -huh. but I married a man of Irish extraction, and I was interested to see, since he's from the East Coast, the persistence of alcohol in Irish-American uh -huh. culture. Of course, it's famous in Irish culture, right? but um, it's part of Irish-American culture as well. Yeah. And I wonder how much that had to do with the rejection of immigrants in the 19th century when the, you know, the teetotal mm -hmm. programs were just getting started, and then in come all these immigrants... Right have drink as part of their culture. Right. It's deeply woven into the literature, the music, the jokes. Yeah, so, uh, Patty, you're suggesting in a way that Irish people in America have uh, used alcohol as a form of cultural expression, sort of snubbing their noses at those waspy Yankees, those disapproving teetotaler types. Yeah, they were pretty unashamedly yeah. drinkers. Patty, I, I can't answer your question directly about the Irish, but... It is clear that uh, some of these WASP elites embraced temperance and embraced prohibition as a way of uh, distinguishing themselves from immigrant groups, uh, including the Irish. So it, I think you have a really interesting thesis that uh, even after the Irish became acculturated, they hung on to some of the cultural meanings in terms of uh, distinguishing themselves from the so-called enemy. But there's also the phenomenon of the lace curtain Irish, as they're called. Right. That is the very re hyper-respectable Irish, out Yankee the Yankee in terms of their right. sobriety and so forth. That's my husband's family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Boring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
but alcoholism does run yeah. along with the, the charm and the talk. You have conflicted feelings about it, is what you're saying right now, that it's been a problem for Irish people. It's known as the Irish curse. In my family, in my husband's family, in my in-laws' family, every family has at least one alcoholic. My parents actually, they were not alcoholic and they never had a drinking problem, but there had been alcoholics in both sides of their family. Right. So they raised us with the AA Blue Book. I mean, they brought it in the house when I was no 10 kidding. and they explained to us, etc. But it's still part of the culture. But you know, Patty, I, I want to comment on something that is reflected in your call itself, which is because your name is Patty and because you're an Irish-American, you can talk very openly about certain things that in the mouths of others would be seen as stereotypes. And I think there's a, a bit of an answer to your question in this observation, which is whether or not the Irish drink more or not, the Irish themselves are able to talk about this openly in ways that certainly would give the impression that Irish drink more, whether you happen to be right or not. You know, when we were in Ireland a couple of years ago, uh, I noticed the um, emphasis on a lot of billboards and radio shows about drunken driving. And the newspapers were actually filled with a very frank discussion of just what you're talking about, that, you know, this is so identified with the rite of passage that it really has become, they were saying in their editorials, you know, pathological for Ireland. And uh, the drunken driving part seemed to be sort of a crisis proportion. So, you know, I think that it's a fine line in, for lots of different cultures, things that are identifiable as the, the core of the culture uh, and set them apart, which everybody's looking for. Something that distinguishes them can also become the thing that stereotypes them. And it's always a struggle, I think. I've read recently that the number of pubs in Ireland has declined by about 50 percent, that uh, pubs are closing down, and that the old ways of drinking, the folk ways in which alcohol was a normal part of of village culture and village celebrations. I mean, Irish people are becoming modern people, just as Irish American people became modern long before the Irish people did. That True, is, but they, they retained the drink as part of the culture, whether you drank yeah. it at a pub or drank it at yeah. home or at your friend's home. Right. They retained the alcohol. Well, I think we've all retained the alcohol to some extent. Well, some of us can't retain it. It's a, it's a challenge. Well, the Irish are very good at it. <laughs> well, some of them are. <laughs> so, Patty, it's been great talking to you. Thank you, Thanks Thanks for Patty. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thanks for calling. Bye. Another call, and this one is from Albany, New York. We've got Joy. Joy, welcome to Backstory. Thank you. What's on your mind? I'd like to talk a little bit about the dichotomy between how we expect our teens to behave mm. in terms of their alcohol consumption and right. what we allow for ourselves and right. whether or not it's really fair to expect more of our teens than the behavior we actually model for them. Whoa, that's a heavy question. So we're may, gonna... may I ask how old you are, Joy? I'm 24. Yeah, I'm sorry. We've got a uh, yeah. minimum age here. Yeah, you're history, practically guys. a teenager as far as we're <laughs> concerned. So uh, you're talking about double standards? Yes. Uh, I think that we expect our teens to be moderate alcohol consumers and not drink and drive. Yeah. Um, and we as adults don't necessarily model that behavior. And when an adult does get caught drinking and driving, there's no guarantee that there will be an actual punishment. Uh, well, I guess my answer would be, uh, it seems that Joy is getting at the hypocrisy that surrounds adult drinking. And uh, w without sounding like a member of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, uh, <laughs> as, a, as the father of three teenage kids, I would, 
you know, the, the, the higher the drinking age, the better, as far as I'm concerned. But I do agree with Joy that there's a lot of hypocrisy entailed in the way we treat adult drinkers, especially those who drive. And I, for one, would really like to see the, the police enforce this more seriously. And, and the courts, of course, often have their hands tied on this for some reason, which I can't well, figure out. Guys, let's do some history here. This is the whoa, whoa, backstory, whoa. right? What about drinking ages through history? And the whole notion of Joy's question is about how we manage uh, teenage drinking. When does that become a problem? When, when do adults begin worrying about teenagers acting out and, and link it to alcohol consumption. Are you asking me or are you asking someone else? I'm asking hey. them. They're supposed to know something. Yeah. But, but, yeah, well, okay. knows. <laughs> but maybe you know. Yeah. <laughs> like my understanding is that youth alcohol use really wasn't an issue um, until the 20th century and really actually the post-World World War II period. Yeah. Yeah. That it just, first of all, in terms of the 19th century, Children and teens were seen as the victims of parental alcohol abuse, particularly paternal alcohol yeah, abuse. Good point, good point. Um, no, I think that's right. I mean, in some ways, the problem of teenage drinking begins when we have teenagers, which is also a 20th century invention. You know, before that, the, just a, a gradation between children and adults. And uh, but when they became a distinct category, sharply defined, then it was uh, looked like a problem to be solved. Right. And and why it's a 20th century issue, number one, I think, is the car and the combination of drinking and driving and the inherent necessity of state regulation, uh, certainly of cars. And the state had regulated alcohol for a long time, but not necessarily in regard to kids. Mm-hmm. Secondly, it's after World War II and especially the 1960s that large corporations start targeting kids for major marketing campaigns. And they do that because for the first time, uh, kids, middle-class kids, begin to have a lot of spare change. They can get their hands on this alcohol pretty easily. And I think uh, getting back to Ed's point about the invention of the teen years, there's a tremendous discrepancy now between arriving at an age in which you're capable of driving cars and going to parties and drinking a lot and being responsible because we've protracted adolescence well into the 20s, if not the 30s, for yeah. our kids. You're, I'm not calling you, Joy. You're not an adolescent still, are you? No. Yeah, but I, it's a really interesting thing because I look at my peers sometimes that are still drunk dialing, and I'm like, you're 24. Yeah. Yes, and that's the real problem is is how do you define a precise age at which it makes sense to, in effect, license a whole population to go out and have a good time. Well, we can legislate that people can be drafted and that they can vote. Yeah, yeah. You know, know, so it's kind of funny that you can go off and die, but you can't have a drink. I agree. I agree. You know, maybe age is not the right way to do this. Uh, There's certainly lots of ways to predict who is going to be a responsible drinker. What? DNA testing or what? No, not DNA testing. We The insurance companies know all of this. Uh, they, they know about differences between men and women. They know about differences between people based on their grade point average. Those might mm, end up being like profiling. Those might end up being much better predictors than age. But Peter, I think you really put your finger on it. Age seems neutral. 
We're mm-hmm. not, yeah, you know, yeah, we're yeah. not, You're not discriminating. we're not picking on, you know, male athletes with GPAs below 2.0, for instance. Uh, mm-hmm. On the other hand, to address Joy's very real issue, you know, why discriminate against the responsible 20-year-old may not make sense in this day and age. Okay, Joy. Well, we wish you joy. It's been a pleasure talking <laughs> to you. Great. Thanks for calling. Thank you so much. Right. Okay, bye. goodbye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We got a call from William in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Backstory. Thank you very much. I just wanted to uh, to ask you about the the brewing topic, the, specifically the small craft brewing. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're aware of any history uh, associated with that, and where you see the future of uh, the small craft and microbrewery, where it's going, you think it's a fad, uh, William? I'll just pass it to Brian, but first just say that if uh, craft brew takes off, it's a return to the good old days. Yeah, Peter, everybody yeah. was a craft brewer in your day. Well, that's I'm right. I'm surprised was, you're passing it along the, so quickly. It was in-house. But before we skip over to Brian, I, yeah. I think I need to talk about the golden age of when we destroyed that in the 19th century, in the 20th <laughs> century, with uh, you know mass production. Yeah, mm-hmm. And so... What began in the 19th century was really being able to produce large amounts and ship, and uh, when you had ice and, uh, mm-hmm. and standardization, and being able to, you know, have water supplies that are consistent, and, and be able to get all the raw materials by train and so forth, uh, that begins in the in the 19th century. Really accelerates the 20th century and almost comes to like an extreme form. After World War II, is that right? Before it comes back into craft, that's right. Uh, it's it's really uh, during the Great Depression and then increasing during the war, World War II, that a lot of the regional brewers are wiped out. The major development there, William, is prohibition, and mm-hmm. then of course there's a Great Depression, and a lot of those regional and smaller brewers, we, they didn't call them craft brewers. They're, they're just brewers for the, you know, the local area. They just didn't make it through those 13 years of prohibition and then long economic downturn afterwards. So what we have after World War II is really national brewers and national distribution. They start using throwaway cans. Uh, they start putting chemicals in beer and packaging it in a way that it no longer has to be shipped on ice. And this is part of the story of, you know, a national market, national advertising. Everything's going great. We got Anheuser-Busch. We've got Miller. And then something happens in the 60s and the 70s, and that is uh, the counterculture. It's a return to the local And along with that, we have brewers uh, who I guess you would label as craft brewers begin to emerge with a real critique of these large, national, standardized 
breweries. Yeah, you know what's really driving this, Brian, is uh, the new inequality and that people can afford to pay twice as much for a craft (laughs) brew. Uh, Okay, William, so what's your stake in all this, aside from uh, the stake of a consumer in drinking good Um, beer? Well, I'm originally from Michigan, Uh now live in in Pennsylvania, and uh, I graduated from Western Michigan University, and there was a, a brewery near my apartment, which served as my study hall also, I guess you could say. <laughs> um, but we could only get, when I was going through college, uh, that local brewery, that small craft beer in that area. And now I'm starting to notice some of that beer is being marketed here in, in eastern Pennsylvania. You mean your your Michigan beer is showing up in Pennsylvania? Yeah. Which is fine with me. I'm not complaining. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, I've heard it brought up before, though, that how big is too big? to consider it still a small craft before it yeah. starts going mainstream yeah. and then becomes right another, well, well, you can get that anywhere. You know, it is going mainstream, and all these micro breweries have been bought up. Uh, they continue to brew. They're, they continue to do it the way they do it, but they're now owned by Budweiser or some other company. Oh, not, not all of them. Not all of them, but you, it's... Uh, it's You uh, know, because those hippies in the 70s who, who wanted the local and the authentic mm-hmm. and hated that standardized Anheuser-Busch, yeah. those big American corporations, well, guess what? Those big American corporations <laughs> are now owned by foreign companies. Right. right. Uh, Anheuser Busch is it's another owned... exotic again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, not so much. They are gargantuan. Now, now we're drinking Dutch beer. All right. So here's or a, South African. Here's beer. a test, guys. What beer company owned by American ownership accounts for the largest percentage of the market? Mm-hmm. I know that old Milwaukee was voted best tasting yeah. beer not too long ago, but I don't have a clue. William, you're changing the topic. And old Milwaukee, yes. by the way, is not owned by an American company as far Africa. as I know. Okay. That's yeah. South Africa. That's part of the uh, Miller constellation, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Rolling, Rolling Rock. That's not a bad guess. Uh, it's Yingling. Okay, oh, and, and right here. Uh, right, 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 there, right, right, Pennsylvania. right here. Exactly. You, and it just surpassed. Uh, Sam Adams, the Boston brewing company. But what's amazing is those count for tiny percentages of the market, I think less than 2% yeah. in, in each case. So, you know, on the one hand, we have a real move towards the microbreweries. On, on the other hand, most Americans, and most Americans who consider themselves to be real Americans, are drinking beer that is uh, owned or produced by owners um, yeah. So, in other countries. So, Brian and Ed, what interests me about all this is the airsats use of the word craft. It's something like organic. Craft. Natural. As in the potato chips I eat are often handcrafted, and I have this image of yes. little people making each chip for me. So you don't mean craft is in <laughs> processed cheese. Well, I think it's it's the kind of uh, nostalgia invoking Ed century yeah. uh, and before. My Pepperidge century, Farm. too. Ye oldie. Yeah. With an E. Yeah. Hey, thanks a lot, William, for your great call. Hey, enjoy your ales and stouts and have a grand day. All right. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye now. This is the last call for alcohol this evening. It's closing time here at Backstory, but we hope you'll look for us online and continue the merriment. Pay us a visit at backstoryradio.org and let us know your favorite euphemism for drunk. 
As always, you can find a lot of other Backstory extras on our Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr pages. Our handle is Backstory Radio. Don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by Tony Field, Jess Ingebretson, Eric Mennel, Anna Pinkert, and Nell Beschenstein. Major support for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional funding is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment, and by History Channel, history made every day. Brian Ballow is professor of history at the University of Virginia. Peter Onuf is professor of history emeritus at UVA and senior research fellow at Monticello. Ed Ayers is professor of the humanities and president emeritus at the University of Richmond. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Backstory is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.